Well, we are on dangerous ground this morning. We're, we're, we're going to tread to ugly territory, dangerous territory. I don't know if you follow news and politics much. It seems like these days you can't really avoid it. Um, seems that every day there's a new expose of something offensive that somebody said or somebody did um, in their past. Now it gets dragged up and they need to apologize for it. Um, just this last week, two members of the United Conservative Party here in Alberta were, were outed uh, for sermons that they had preached that mentioned homosexuality, presumably in a negative light. I'll, I'll just admit I haven't done a whole lot of research in it, but there it is. It's come up. It's, it's a big deal. And uh, now as the offense machine begins to roll, um, we see these guys desperately trying to apologize. They're, they're trying to do this, this strange dance they have to do now between sacrificing their convictions and committing political suicide. And, and that, among other reasons, is, is why you won't see my name on any lawn signs anytime soon. Um, but these issues have become so huge of gender and sexuality, and the Bible speaks very clearly on them. Um, and they've become hot-button topics in our day. And if you don't toe the line on these issues, if you don't play along, um, you're in trouble. You don't, you don't have space in the, in the public sphere anymore. And so it seems as Christians, um, we're just kind of waiting with bated breath, waiting for the other shoe to drop. Um, Christianity is certainly no longer popular, um, no longer generally acceptable, if we ask Hollywood anyway. How long? How long until it's no longer legal? Honestly, I just kind of wonder, do they, do they even know what we believe? Because I think if we lay this out clearly, um, the government would just say, yeah, we're done with that. that. That doesn't belong in our society. But what I find almost humorous is they haven't even scratched the surface. They don't get it. Christianity is far more offensive than that. It is far more controversial than they think it is. And, and as we work through the book of Exodus, um, specifically looking at these 10 plagues on Egypt, we just have to stop and stare right in the face of this. Uh, so we're, we're not going to apologize, but, but we just want to couch this and say, this is the ugly side. We're going in here. And we need to stare this square in the face and understand the, the, the head-to-head contrast that we have with the thinking of our world and with what's acceptable today. Something far more broadly and deeply offensive than the, the comments made by these gentlemen from the conservative party. And it's this, there's one God. There is one God and he will punish sinners. That's it. I mean, forget about all the squabbles over discrimination. The plagues are saying... I am king, I will have complete dominion over everything, and I will destroy those who oppose me. There, there's equal opportunity for offense here. Not, not just one subcategory of society, not just one minority group or another. Um, this is everybody. There is one God, and he will punish sinners. I, I dare say there is nothing else more offensive to our modern mind. As Pharaoh stands against Yahweh, the God of Israel, and, and he declares by his actions, God, you will not rule me. I will 
rule. I am the, the captain of my fate, the master of my own destiny. And, and the Lord says, not going to do it. I will not stand for it. We'll take a closer look at, at these middle three plagues, four, five, and six. I invite you to turn with me at, uh, to Exodus chapter 8. And we'll be starting in verse 20. Um, if you don't have a Bible on you, just go ahead and slip up your hand and one of our ushers will get you a Bible. We want you to have God's word open in front of you um, that you can see this isn't my ideas. This doesn't originate with me. Uh, I'm just trying to explain as clearly as I can what God's word says to us. If you remember from the beginning, um, this has been a battle over glory. Pharaoh has demanded that the people serve him. And he, and he uses this word avad that, that means serve and worship. It's all wrapped up together. The first three plagues, the, the turning of the Nile into blood and the multiplying of frogs over the land and the sending of these biting insects was the Lord partly making the statement to Israel. His direct attack on the Nile included uh, an attack on Happy, the, the god of the Nile. And the Display of the frogs having to do with Heket, this, this frog-headed god of fertility. And there were statements to Israel that, that what Egypt values and what Egypt holds up as sacred and says these are the things that give joy and life and, and human thriving, they won't deliver. They're faulty. And it's God saying the, the glory of Egypt and all that it has to offer has nothing compared with me. I am the one who gets the glory for these things. I am the one who is the only true source of, of joy and satisfaction. But we can't overlook the fact that at the same time, as he's, as he's lovingly teaching and disciplining Israel, his people, he's also beginning to pour out wrath on Egypt. The plagues aren't pretty. Um, maybe you've read the children's Bibles and storybooks over it and, and, and their cute little frogs. That's not what we're looking at. This was ugly and it will continue to increase. And we just can't overlook the fact that there is wrath being poured out. These first three plagues brought humiliation and hardship and, and discomfort and disgust. But as it continues, um, there's suffering here. There's a lot of pain on, on real people. So let's read through um, these plagues and take a closer look. We'll start with uh, plague number four there, Exodus 8, starting in verse 20. It says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else you will not, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen, and the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies onto the, into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt, and the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. 
But Moses said it would not be right for us to do so, for the offerings that we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. And so Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only not let, let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Let's just walk through this and make sure we understand what's going on. If you remember kind of the layout of the plagues, we've we've talked through a little bit. They they come in groups of three. Um, So Plagues 1, 2, and 3 are, are one set. Plagues 4, 5, and 6 are another set. And 7, 8, and 9 are the last set. And then plague 10 is the hammer. Plague 10 is what it's all been pointing forward to. And, and there are some very clear patterns that make this obvious. And, and if you look at plague number 1, Moses and Aaron are supposed to go out to Pharaoh early in the morning as he's on his way to the water and say to him, Let uh, the, the Lord God of the Hebrews sent me to you, saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. And here again, as the second plague starts, we see basically the exact same thing playing out. You just imagine Pharaoh on his way down to the water early in the morning, and he sees Moses back in the same spot. He's taken the same stance, and he thinks, oh no, here we go again. We're not done with this. And there's, a, there's this little play on words that happens here. Literally, um, the Lord says to Pharaoh, send my people out. Send them out, um, or else I will send swarms of flies on you. One of us, one of us is going to send Pharaoh. Who's it going to be? Will you send my people, or will I send destruction? And what exactly is sent here isn't all that clear. Um, I think basically, as far as I can see, every modern translation says swarms of flies, and, and that's certainly not wrong. Um, the Hebrew just has swarms, and they've kind of added in flies because that's kind of what seems natural there. Um, but I think for us as North Americans, when we read flies, um, we think house flies, and they're icky, and they're gross, but that's about the extent of it. But if you look at the context here as we read, um, verse 24 says the land was ruined because of them. And and Psalm 78, that's looking back on this plague, says that that he sent them swarms that devoured them. So I don't think we're talking about house flies. They're they're swarms, possibly many different kinds of insects, and, and insects that are biting and devouring and ruining the land. And so as we mentioned last week, Israel in Goshen is spared from this. These swarms come and are, and are all over the people of Egypt and all over the land. And it's hard to imagine, but at some point there, there's literally a line in the sand. And on one side, you have Goshen, you have the Israelites, and it's nice and it's normal. And there's no, nothing noteworthy going on. 
and you walk across that line and there's the squish of bugs under your sandal and the crawling over top of your foot. They're everywhere. There's an infestation of swarms of bugs. They're into the house. They're into the bedrooms. There's no, there's no escaping from these things. And so they had insects right into the palace. So this brings us to Pharaoh's first attempt to appease God. And I think here we see clearly there's no bargaining with God. There's no bargaining with God. Look at how this plays out. These swarms of insects are absolutely intolerable. You, you try to brush them out of your bed and they just keep crawling in. You're trying to, you're trying to get away from them and you can't. So it's no surprise that Pharaoh says, okay, I'm, I'm done. Um, I don't, don't want to do this anymore. Um, but he doesn't just give up. He says in, in verse 25, he says to Moses, okay, go and sacrifice within the land. Sounds almost like he's capitulating and, and yet... The command has been clear from the beginning. Let my people go out of the land, clearly implied. Um, not just to sacrifice, but to serve and worship me. And again, that, that word to serve is so significant. Pharaoh says, sure, go sacrifice, but you're my servants. So that's, this is Pharaoh's plan. Tell you what. Don't serve him, just sacrifice. Don't, don't go out of the land, just do it here. Can we come to some kind of middle ground, some kind of agreement? God says, no. No, I'm not bartering with you. It's not how this works. And Moses' um, answer then actually is a little bit surprising. As we look at it, it, it almost appears as if Moses is okay with it. But I think what he's doing is sparring with Pharaoh. It's this bartering culture, and he's taking a shot back. He says to Pharaoh, you, you and I both know this isn't going to work. Um, for one thing, if we do the sacrifices here, um, where your people are who worship their gods, and if we sacrifice an animal that they worship, it's just not going to go over well. They're going to try to stone us. But that's not at all to say that they don't both know what's going on. This simply isn't going to cut it. So Moses says, no. No, we're going to go three days into the wilderness to sacrifice to our God as he tells us to. And again, that phrase, three-day journey, we've run into that a few times. It doesn't mean just a three-day trip. It was kind of a colloquialism. It was a, a figure of speech. Like we would say, no, no, we're getting out of town. We're, we're, going, to, we're going to go far away. We're getting out of here. And as far back as Genesis 15, the Lord had promised to Abraham um, that he would bring his offspring back into the land of Canaan. That was always in view. Genesis 46, when, when Jacob was nervous about going down to Egypt in the first place to escape the famine, the Lord said, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will surely bring you up again to Canaan. The Lord appeared to Moses at the burning bush, chapter 3, verse 8, and he said, I've, I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites. They're going back to Canaan. That has never changed. That's never been an optional part of God's plan. God's not going to budge. But Pharaoh wouldn't give up that easy. He, he tried again. How about this? Verse 28, I'll let you go sacrifice, again, not serve, sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. So I'll let you out of the land, but stay close. How about that? 
And Moses almost agrees, but I think he's figured this out. He knows that Pharaoh isn't being sincere, and there's no point arguing with a liar. And so he says, okay, I'll pray for you to lift the plagues, and and we'll see, Pharaoh. Just don't cheat again by not letting the people go. And there's this contrast here as as Moses kind of says, all right, Pharaoh. And he prays to the Lord. And Pharaoh is pushing God. He's trying to nickel and dime God. He's trying to get away with as much as he can. He's even lying to God, saying that, that he'll let the people go, making promises he has no intention in following through on. And God, knowing full well the state of Pharaoh's heart and the depths of his deceit, still faithfully, quickly, and completely removes the swarms from Egypt. They're gone. God is so patient with Pharaoh. He, he gives Pharaoh so many opportunities, so many off-ramps. You prayed and I, I answered. I gave you space. I gave you room. But Pharaoh doesn't take it. Pharaoh again hardens his heart and would not let the people go. And so in the end, the Lord's patience toward Pharaoh just gives Pharaoh more opportunity to show his contempt for God. It's a perfect example of Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Paul writes, Or do you presume on the riches of the kindness of his forbearance and patience, not knowing the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's a terrifying place to be. As we lean in and ask God for his grace and he gives it and then we use it to walk away from him, continue on in sin. Here's the thing, you don't, you don't get to bargain with God. You don't get to set the terms as you, as you come to God. It's not a conversation between two equal parties. It just isn't. He's the creator. You're the creation. He's the king. You're the servant. He's the owner. We're owned. And we, just like Pharaoh, tend to think so highly of ourselves and so little of God and his holiness. We kind of expect God must be obligated to give me something, right? I deserve a certain amount of dignity and and respect. And, And so I have this leverage with God. We should be able to come to some kind of a fair agreement, right? This little plaque kicking around my house was kind of given to me, uh, couple years ago as a joke. Um, and it says on it, how much can I get away with and still go to heaven? Seems like a question a lot of people are asking. How much can I get away with and still go to heaven? And, and the answer is actually pretty clear. Actually, my 10-year-old son figured it out. Dad, I think the answer is nothing. Right? If you're coming at it from that perspective, say, how much sin can I get away with and still go to heaven? The answer is zero. That's the degree to which God will compromise his holiness. How much do you need to obey God in order to earn his favor? Absolutely, unequivocally, 100%. Without so much of a shadow of an inclination or a passing thought toward immorality. Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. God gave them one command. Don't eat from the, from the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. They broke that command. 
God did not say, don't worry about it. He did not accept that as an alternate lifestyle choice. He did not tell them, you poor things, you were, you were deceived, and I understand the servant came, you didn't know. No, he kicked them out of the garden. He expelled them. He banished them. He brought the curse of sin into the world, and he told them, now because of your sin, you will die. We don't get many chapters later, and we see the days of Noah. People are continuing on as Adam and Eve had started, deciding that they would make the rules, that they would do what they thought was right. And the Lord brought this torrential flood that drowned and killed entire population of the earth, saving eight. That's fierce. That's that's a hard truth to look at. Later on, the Israelites take the Ark of the Covenant. They should have been carrying it on poles with priests. Instead, they, they put it on a cart. And as they're carrying it along, the oxen stumble and the cart wobbles. And a young man named Uzzah, not wanting the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, to fall into the mud, put out his hand to steady it. God didn't say, you had good intentions, young man. You had the right motivation. You did what you thought was best at the time. He struck Uzzah dead right there in his tracks. This is fierce. Time and time again, we see God deploying poisonous snakes and unleashing deadly disease, raining down fire from heaven, opening up the earth to swallow people. For one thing, sin. Straying from God's commands. Disrespecting His holiness. We tend to think of the God of the Old Testament as angry. No, He's holy and we are sinful. And Jesus is no different. Jesus spoke more about hell than any other topic. And in case you want to try to contrast the the angry God of the Old Testament with this nice, long-haired, sheep-loving Jesus of the New Testament, listen to Matthew 10. Jesus says, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, speaking to those disciples that he sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God, he says, Shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or that town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. He's doubling down on the wrath of God. He's saying this will be worse still than what you saw in the Old Testament. The most horrific language that we have for hell, these phrases like the blazing furnace and the worm that never dies and and eternal torment, we we have those from Jesus. That's, That's where we learn to speak that way. And maybe, maybe your mama used to threaten things. And never actually follow through, but not God. Now, he does not deal lightly with sin. It's one of the messages of the ten plagues, loud and clear. Remember, this is God introducing himself. This is God saying, this is the kind of God that I am. Here's how I deal with those who oppose me. And the plagues are about this undeniable real, horrible suffering and eventually death of thousands. We need need to soak in that for a minute. 
God does not overlook sin. He does not overlook those who oppose him. And that includes those who would, who would presume to barter with him. Give him some portion of full submission and obedience and worship. Or who would hold back and say, God, I'm going to give you this, but this part's mine. We can come to some kind of agreement. Those who would promise again and again, oh God, I'll follow you now. Help me through this hard season and then I'm yours, but who then immediately walk away as soon as the trial is passed. Don't, don't presume that you can barter with God. That halfway obedience will get you by. That, that promises made and never kept will somehow make everything okay. There is no bargaining with God. Let's continue our way through these other two plagues. Looking at the beginning of chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. We see the fifth plague. Let me read it for us. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds and flocks. But the Lord will make a great distinction, will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land, and the next day the Lord did this thing, and the livestock of the Egyptians died. But not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. So the Lord sent Moses to Pharaoh again, delivers the same message, let my people go. And this time there's a little extra weight to it. If you remember at the end of the third plague, the, the magicians were to this point successfully reproducing the, the water turned to blood and, um, and the frogs, there we go. Um, and then when it came to the gnats, they failed. They couldn't do it. They couldn't make it happen. And, and in despair, the magicians say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. That may have been the finger of God, but now verse 3, this is the hand of God. Things are about to get uglier. Moses says, the Lord will send a very severe plague on your livestock. And again, separating out Israel's livestock, theirs will not die. And the next day, all the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. And I love seeing Pharaoh's insecurity again. He, he had to send somebody, go and check. That's what Moses said would happen. But go and see and make sure that none of the livestock of Israel is dead. Sure enough, they weren't. And this again would have been so humiliating a blow to the Egyptians. I mean, certainly their, their livelihood is at stake here. But livestock also would have been this, this significant marker of wealth. And that, that's, that's who you are. And so to say you have the cattle on a thousand hills is to say you are immeasurably rich. Livestock were your status, and the Egyptians have just been cleaned out. They've been left desolate, and their slaves are left untouched. Now, this is maybe as good a time as any to, to mention. A lot of people look at these plagues and, and have found very natural explanations for how this may have played out. 
And usually it goes something like this. There was an unusually wet year in Central Africa and, and the water would pick up the red African earth and run it down into the Nile. And so the Nile then became red, kind of like blood. And the, the lack of oxygen then in the water would have caused the fish to die. And the rotting fish floating on the surface would have been the perfect habitat for the bacteria um, that causes anthrax. Now the same reason the fish died, well, all the frogs would come up out of the water and into where people were living. And of course, as the frogs died, that would naturally give rise to an increase in flies everywhere. And then as the frogs decomposed into the soil, the anthrax that they were carrying would have been worked into the livestock who then fell dead. And certainly the flies um, would carry a strain of anthrax. Um, And if you want to read the medical breakdown, they can can give it to you. Um, A strain of anthrax that is not legal, but causes these festering boils. And so there you have it. The first six plagues are this natural progression. Really, it's just caused by heavy rain. Now, to be fair, a lot of the people who would kind of trot this out would say, oh, it's God doing it, but that's how he did it. And and sure, God uses these kind of secondary means. But there are a lot of issues, I think, of just looking at the plagues this way. Firstly, Exodus doesn't say the Nile turned red. It says it turned to blood. And it stank. And I think the extent and the timing of these plagues just doesn't make sense with natural causes. It wasn't as if the frogs just came out of the Nile. The frogs were everywhere. It was more frogs they'd ever seen, and the flies were everywhere. Clearly supernatural in number. And then the frogs and the livestock, they didn't die out over the course of a, a week or a, or a few days even. They, they, they died at once the very day that Moses said they would die. Pharaoh's magicians, by the third plague, they're they're exasperated and they're saying, this is the finger of God, when presumably they maybe could have just said, oh, wet year up north again, right? Like, this is what happens. I guess it would be down south. Um, We've seen this cycle before. This happens about every 10 years, we get a high water, or maybe we have record of this about 100 years ago, something like this happened. And then I think the bottom line is simply that This isn't how the scripture portrays them. This isn't what we're told happened. The story of the Bible is that God directly brought these mighty acts as signs of judgment. They're miracles displaying his power and his glory. That's the emphasis. God did this. Yahweh brought destruction every step of the way. Now, if you remember the first cycle. The first plague came with Moses meeting Pharaoh early in the morning and this bigger warning. The second plague comes kind of unannounced. Uh, Not unannounced, it's briefly announced. The third plague comes without warning. The third is unannounced, and that's the case again here in this second cycle. This third plague again strikes then directly at mankind. Um, Let's look at um, chapter 9, verses 8 to 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh, and it shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out into sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. And so they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. 
And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So the Lord told Moses and Aaron, this time you're not going to warn Pharaoh, just go out. Stand in front of him with a handful of soot from the kiln and throw it in the air. Likely this would have been the kilns used to bake bricks. There's some poetic justice here. The Lord is saying, you made my people suffer beside this kiln. I will make your people suffer from this kiln. And in the sight of Pharaoh, they they throw it into the air and it becomes dust over all the land. And the dust turns into boils that break out in sores on man and beast throughout the land. And while Moses and Aaron stood before Pharaoh in verse 10, the magicians come back on the scene again, and they could not stand before Moses because of the boils. Now, if you remember, the first two plagues um, were obviously targeted at specific Egyptian gods. Happy, the god of the Nile, and Heket, the god of fertility, both symbols of life and joy and thriving. And, And God was saying, I give true life and joy. I am God where you thought they were God. The middle two plagues, um, three and four with the insects, uh, are just less clear. It's not, it's not as distinct. Um, some say Geb, um, the god of the dust. Some would say Kepri, who uh, had a scarab uh, beetle for a head. Um, but, but there's no real clear connection there so far as I can see. The livestock, probably a shot across the bow of the god Hathor, um, who's a very popular fertility god. Um, you can see she has the, the horns of a cow on her head. Um, But the last one seems significant. Uh, Imhotep was the god of medicine and healing. Isis is the god of life and health and magic. Of course, in those days, medicine and religion and magic are not clearly delineated. Those all go together. They don't think of those as separate categories like we might And the assumption was, if something wasn't going right for you, um, you had angered one of the gods. And so if you're having trouble having children, you you would need to go to the magicians and ask for their help. And they would tell you how to make uh, the right sacrifices to Heket or to Hathor. If your crops weren't growing, they might help you appease Nepper and Nepri, the, the gods of grain. But specifically, they would have been involved in healing and health. And Emotep and Isis would have been like their guys. These are our gods. As happy as the god of the Nile, uh, Emotep and Isis are the god of the magicians. And now here they are being thoroughly, visibly beaten on their own turf. Whoever's bringing this disaster on Egypt, even the magicians are powerless to appease him. Those who who specialized in these gods of health and and, and healing are suffering from the disease. And so I think the message is this. There's no bargaining with God and there's no bribing God. That's essentially what they would do. If a certain God was not acting favorably towards you, you would wear his amulet around your neck. You would bring sacrifices to him. You would maybe put up his statue and, and, and try to show him more attention, and then he would be appeased towards you. Your efforts would please that God, and, and they would give you what you wanted. 
So this is a huge part of Egyptian life, is going through these rituals and figuring out which is the right God and how do I, how do I appease this God? What do I need to do to put this God a little more in my debt? And so as these plagues fell on Egypt, that's what they would have been thinking. Which God is it? Who did we offend? How do we make it right? And so they would have been asking, okay, so magicians, what do we need to do? Oh, you guys are wrecked too. How do we get help from you? Clearly, you don't know any more about this God than we do. God is saying, that won't work here. I don't play those games. It comes back to his holiness again. I think that if we believe our offense against God is a small thing, then you get into your head that maybe we can just bring God a cupcake and he'll get over it. Everything will be okay. But our sin, our rebellion against God is is not a small thing. Because God's holiness is not a small thing because he is fiercely dedicated to his holiness and our sin is a direct attack against the character of God. By our sin, we declare, God, you are not worthy of my worship, my service, this is. There's no fixing that. There's no making that Right. There's no undoing our treason against God's holiness. Buying flowers won't fix it. In fact, it's an insult, isn't it? When you've really offended someone, you've really hurt them, and you just offer some kind of token gesture, assuming that'll just make everything go away, that makes it worse. And this thinking didn't die out with the Egyptians. This is so common for us today. Just ask people, walk around and ask, do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? And the people who believe there is a heaven will almost always say yes. The more interesting question is to ask, why? Why do you think you will go to heaven when you die? And before I tell you what I so often hear, you think about it. Answer for yourself in your own mind. Will you go to heaven when you die? And more importantly, why? Why will you go to heaven and not face the wrath of God? You have an answer in your head? I'll tell you the one that I hear over and over again. It's many different forms, but it's the same answer. Because I'm a good person. Because I've done more good than bad. Because I go to church. Because I don't swear very much. I don't drink very much. Because I, 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 I. Because I've bribed God. Isn't that it? Because I've done some good things, even though I've done some bad things that deserve eternal damnation. I've done these three good things, and that ought to wipe it away, right? I brought God a cupcake. That should fix it, right? But you can't. There's no sacrifice that we could give. There's nothing we have to offer. There's no ritual you could perform. There's there's nothing that we can do by our efforts to make this problem go away. It's too big for us. Listen to Acts 17, 25. Nor is he, nor is God, served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. If you did give everything you had to God in service to him, you would only be giving back to him what he gave to you anyway. 
He would only be returning to him, not paying him back for the massive infraction against his holiness. And he doesn't need anything anyways. So if, if you were to lend me your lighter and I were to take it and burn down your home, I can't very well pay you back by giving you back your lighter. It was already yours and it has nothing to do with the disaster I've caused. Isaiah 64, 6 says this, We all have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind carry us away. Even the breath that we have been given by God, we try to turn it back to Him and it's tainted with sin. We're like a filthy child trying to clean up the mess we made, but the more we try to clean, the more we just spread it around the house. There's nothing we can do to make this right. It is an absolutely hopeless situation. We deserve hell and there's there's no getting away from it. There's no bargaining with God. We have no grounds to say, how about we meet 50-50? There's no bribing God. There's there's nothing we can do to, to, there's nothing we have to offer him to make it right. And so where Pharaoh is arrogantly trying to work the angles with God, he ought to be and we ought to be just totally overwhelmed, broken, crushed, devastated by this. Fallen on our faces without one hope of making this right. Like the magicians who could not stand before Moses, we cannot stand before God. We talk so much today about the immeasurable value of each person and how precious you are and how unique and wonderful you are and, and, and that you deserve the absolute best. This is the offensive, offensive truth. We are bankrupt sinners before a perfect, holy God, rightly condemned to death and hell. That's what we deserve. It's who we are. That's the truth. And if we refuse to accept that, it just means a rude awakening in the end. And an eternity of getting exactly what we deserve. But, thank God, but, from that vantage point, those that are totally broken and crushed, hands spread on the floor. I have nothing left. I'm broken. I'm undone. From that vantage point, there is hope. There's actually good news if we can fully accept and bear the weight of the bad news. Quit trying to bargain with God, quit trying to bribe God, quit trying to fight against this and and try to convince God that I'm actually better than he thinks I am. In each of these three plagues, Yahweh is not only loudly declaring that he will not be bargained with, he will not be bribed, that there is no remedy for this sin. He's also just as loudly declaring, I will be benevolent. I will be radically 
gracious, compassionate, merciful, and forgiving. He hints at this. Plague number four, chapter eight, verse 32. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Plague number five, chapter nine, verse four. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. Plague number six, you have verses 11 and 12. The boils broken out on all of Egypt. The magicians are on the ground in pain. And there stand Moses and Aaron, untouched, along with the rest of Israel. What an amazing thing. The line in the sand where the bugs just stopped. Not one on the other side. The livestock that fall dead across Egypt and not a single one died in Israel? These unrelenting boils on everyone. Intense suffering to the point they can't even walk. There's Moses and Aaron unaffected. God is pouring out his wrath, not only on Pharaoh, not only on the false gods of Egypt, but on normal, everyday, average Egyptian people. And he's drawing a stark line of contrast between them and Israel. Israel who had sinned. Israel who had rebelled against God, but Israel who were his people whom he had showed unbelievable grace and kindness and who were completely sheltered from the wrath of God. The wrath that they deserved. And that little word in, in 8.23 and, and 9.4, it's the same word translated once, a distinction and then a division. Uh, it's an odd word. Some of you might even have a, a footnote in your Bible beside it. It could also just as well be translated a rescue. Or a redemption. I will make a rescue for my people. I will make a redemption for them. Psalm 130 verse 7 uses the same word. It says this, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him there is plentiful redemption. There's no bargaining with God. There's no bribing God. You won't get anything from him. You won't pull it from him. But there's benevolence with God. There's this grace. Luke 18 tells this story. The Pharisee and the tax collector going into the temple. The Pharisee being the one who has lived this impeccably careful life. Oh, this... This describes us more than we'd like to admit. He works so hard to repay God for his sin. He, he dutifully carried out all the religious tasks. He was in church every Sunday morning. He gave in the offering. He served in the children's ministry. He did it all. And he stood in the temple and he prayed, I thank you, God. Thank you that I'm not like those other people. I'm not a robber. I'm not an evildoer. I'm not an adulterer. I fast twice a week. I give 10% of all my income. What's he saying? Look what all I've given you. Look what I've earned from you. 
And he's a Pharisee. He's the honored and respected one in all of society. He's the good guy here. And the tax collector, this swindler, this dirty traitor and a cheat comes into the temple, dares come into the temple. And he's crushed. He's broken. Overwhelmed by what he knew he rightly deserved. It says he, he couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his chest and said, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus utters these shocking words. I tell you, this man went to his home justified rather than the other. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You can't see that escape from the place of bargaining. It's not there. You'll never bribe your way into God's grace. You can't do it. But coming crushed and broken without one plea, there's a way. I thought God was fiercely committed to his holiness. That he would certainly punish all sin. That he doesn't warn something and not carry it out. He is fiercely committed to his holiness. He will punish all sin. And he did. On the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what the cross is about. Not that, not that sin is somehow wiped away, but that it's paid for. But only for those who will give up on bargaining. Who see the folly and the offense of trying to bribe God with some goodness in ourselves and just trust in His benevolence. And I fear even as Christians, we... We continue to hang on to those things a little bit. Maybe you've, maybe you've come to Christ. Maybe you've, you've been to that place of, of brokenness and just clinging only to the grace of God. But how often do we get up again and say, oh God, now I'll do better. Now you'll save me. Now I'll earn a little more of your favor if I do right. And we have his favor in Christ. Should we be growing in holiness? Should we be walking according to his commands? Absolutely, out of this joyful gratitude for what he has done. Because his favor has already been given. The price has already been paid. 